this is a win-win situation. There's real opportunities from all of this that are just waiting to happen. Um, so I have, I have a lot of hope. Hello, and welcome to the Research Valorization podcast series. My name is Sarah Jabber, Manager Business Development at UIIN, and your host for today. Today's episode is the second part of our conversation with Yeti van Ginkel, owner at Care for Impact in the Netherlands, Margaret Evans-Gallia, Executive Director of the Industry Mentoring Network in STEM and co-founder of Women in Science Australia, and Chris Fellingen, Social Sciences and Humanities Lead at Oxford University Innovations and founder and director of the ARC Accelerator. If you haven't already listened to the first part, make sure to check it out. Today, we'll be building on the previous discussion around valorization and commercialization, where our guests will delve deeper into what researchers need to be able to successfully create impact from their research. We hope you enjoy the discussion. You mentioned, for example, some of the skills that you learned through entrepreneurship can really be useful for your research. So I was just wondering um, if you could think or suggest what are some of those core skills that researchers need in order to be able to uh, valorize or commercialize their, their research? First one's project management, formal project management training. Like seriously, so many, so many young researchers, early career researchers, we go in, we're completely blind. We're handed a project or you create a project, depending on how it's evolved in, in your conversations and make it happen. You've got three years. And so we'll see you at the other end with a thesis. And it's kind of like you fly blind for a while, unless there's a really wonderful postdoc or a mentor who takes you under the wing, or you do have an outstanding supervisor who gives you that really hands-on guidance. But with the time and the pressures and the grant writing responsibilities of academics today, that's, that's getting harder and harder and harder to do for seven to 10 PhD students in their lab as well as the, the five postdocs who look after them. So I find, I find that that's a real challenge, um, is just something as simple as that, but also risk-taking, strategizing forward and planning ahead, goal-setting. Um, networking is, is so important to feedback into your research. When you bounce ideas with different types of people, you get different perspectives and, and you can go in new directions. And so I, I don't want to take them all from the others because I know they too will have additional skills, but I, I think it's really critical. So I'll hand over to you, Yeti. I saw you on yeah, I think I think you mentioned most of the important ones. Indeed, I, I think one, and maybe it's not even a skill, but it's just a, a perspective. But really, the value of time—that is something that I I really didn't have in the beginning of my my PhD. So I would always think whenever I do it, it's cheaper than when I outsource something. And as an extreme example, uh, in my time at the, at the TTO, I had this, uh, this this wonderful, talented PhD student, and she came to me with an invention, and she she had a, a thing to to track mice with little uh, LED lights on a needle, and she wanted to commercialize it. Okay, is the, is there any alternative on the market? She says yes, there is, but they cost twelve euros each, and I can make them for seventy five cents. So that's a huge improvement. And then I asked her, how do you do it? And she said, I have to spend two full weeks on a, on a specialized microscope to actually put it together. And, and yeah, I couldn't help but starting to laugh, which after, afterwards I felt a little bit bad. But I said, well, can you please calculate for me what it costs again? And she said, well, I take the needle, I take the, the three lights and, and that's it. So she said, 
it takes you time, yeah, but I can bring it back to maybe two, three hours. <laughs> and that's a very extreme example. But in a lot of the projects, uh, as, a, as a PhD student, because you start there in the Netherlands, it's four years, you start with this huge question, you have four years, it feels like forever. It feels like you can explore every direction you want. But in the end, uh, here, money is not really the issue, but you cannot do everything and and then you come back to strategizing and goal setting and and all these skills i think to to know that you only can spend your hours once and see what's the way to uh, to make the most impact that's uh, something that i really learned from the entrepreneurial side um i, I agree with all the above i would add communication though as as a really big one i would would say for the main academics are terrible at tailoring their message to the different audiences. And, um, you know, we say, oh, you know, what, what's your venture? And what you really get is what their entire research uh, thing is with like a detailed technicality. We're saying we don't care. And I think learning to both tell an interesting story, but also to tailor the message to the audience. What, what do they need to know? What do they care about? And skip absolutely everything else. They don't need to understand everything behind it. And that's we actually spend on the Arc Accelerator, I'd say almost half the program on the communication side because it's just intuitively difficult. And obviously they're used to explaining their research because they're always justifying it for a new paper in front of a technical audience. And that has zero traction in the world outside of academia because they don't care. They, the benefit is that actually most people will give the academic the benefit without the lead. You're an academic. I trust that this is right. Now tell me the bit I need to know. Um, but that's really hard. And I think once they get that, though, they've actually got a very powerful tool in their box because they can use that for lots of different things. I actually back that 100%, Chris, because we found that industry leaders, um, it's really interesting when you do surveys of students versus industry leaders and say, what do they actually need? What, what training do they need? And so students will always say, oh, grant writing, paper writing, these sorts of, you know, sorts of very focused technical type of workshops. Industry leaders say leadership, communication, networking. It's all those other skills, the professional skills and the interpersonal skills that are so critical. And I always encourage, because I'm a bit of a social media fiend, I have a bit of a digital footprint. I always encourage people to get on social media because it teaches you very, very quickly in a very short time how to convey your message. Um, in any kind of communication, and it will stand you in good stead. I, I completely back it 100%. So on that, for example, uh, Yeti, with your work at the TTO and with the work you do at the moment, you're really focused on working uh, you know, with entrepreneurs, supporting them, teaching them some of these skills. Chris, you do that with the ARC Accelerator. Margaret, you do that through, through IMNES, through the mentoring. But what are some ways or, or how can we really embed some of these skills into um, you know, uh, students, researchers from an early stage across the institution? Should it be, uh, for example, introducing entrepreneurship courses for all undergraduates, not just, for example, uh, business students, which is the case in most unis? Or um, you know, how do you, uh, I guess, break that myth maybe or misconception that you can't be an entrepreneur, you can't be entrepreneurial and be a good academic or have academic integrity at the same time? So I guess it comes maybe back to that culture issue at the beginning, but what are some ways that we can really embed this thinking or these skills into maybe curricula or research programs? Yeah, I think you absolutely have to, because what you see now is that uh, I, I loved Chris, what did you mentioned uh, 
the self-selection part, which I really liked. But what, what we saw is at the moment they come in with an idea and they think, oh, maybe it has to become a startup. They have to further develop the idea. They have to learn about entrepreneurship and they have to figure out if this is actually something that really fits them. So then either one of, one of the two things happen or all the energy goes into further developing the technology and the business side is, is being left behind or they start to fully immerse themselves into entrepreneurship and the technology doesn't get any further. So I think if you can tackle that in the undergraduate program, but also we have in, in the Netherlands, we have most of the PhD programs have their own graduate schools, for example, uh, embedded there. I think that would be very, very useful. And to be honest, I think things like uh, intellectual property, they might even have to teach in high school. Because I think uh, we are so used to infringing everybody's, uh, especially copyrights, <laughs> that that would be something that you should, uh, should also put in, in the curriculum somewhere. I would just add to it that, you know, um, a big change at Oxford was the Oxford Foundry, which is essentially a student uh, sort of uh, entrepreneurship centre. And they just ran lots of social events and competitions. And some of the competitions were tiny. It was just like a pitch competition where you had half a day to prepare. Um, and some of them were more serious. Like you'd maybe spend the whole year working with a group of people to come up with a venture idea. And also they do that in addition to their undergraduate. What you're essentially doing though, is starting the pipeline really early. A percentage of them will become postdoctoral researchers and also other universities are all doing it. And then you seeded the idea early. I think the second bit is, You've also demystified entrepreneurship. I think the idea that like, oh my God, you basically have to be like Elon Musk and enjoy 120 hour weeks and have like an idea that's world changing is obviously total rubbish. And the only way to really demystify it is just to go to one of those sessions and be like, oh, just created a pitch deck and set it in front of a bunch of people. And that's, that's pitching. And then the other bit is a business plan. Okay, it's just brainstorming. And once you do that, then I think you've demystified it and hopefully you've affected culture change. Yeah, hackathons are really good. I, I love hackathons. You spend a weekend taking from idea to prototype and it's so much fun and, and you get really good skill sets within that. But with respect to curriculum, I, I really think it should be embedded to some extent. There is debate, can you teach entrepreneurship? Well, actually, I think a lot of us are entrepreneurial and we just don't know what that means, right? It's a little bit like being a mentor. What's it mean? Because I was, you know, identified um, through a mentorship myself as having entrepreneurial skills and being agile in my thinking and liking to think on my feet, things like that. You, you don't think of these as entrepreneurial mindsets. I, I take risks. That's, that's a critical element for an entrepreneur, um, you know, going forward. So I think all of those structured programs are really critical to help young people and, and early career people really identify what their strengths are and where they could potentially increase their capabilities. I, I think it's absolutely essential all the way. I think role models matter too. So feature the students and the graduates who have actually made it happen um, and put them out there. It's a bit of that peer envy that you were talking about, Chris, um, before. So I think if they see others doing it as well, it, they, they, it makes it more real for them. Definitely. I think role models is, is key. I really liked um, the term demystifying entrepreneurship. And I think you've all uh, re referred to that somehow. And, and um, Margaret, with your, with your last comment around what does that even mean? I have entrepreneurial skills. 
And uh, one key and, and something we really try to do in, in all our work is to, to try to um, really differentiate entrepreneurship or the, the concept of really establishing a company or a spin out from entrepreneurial because you know it, it really comes down to the skills, the mindset, the way of acting, the way of thinking. So ways that that can that can be um, enabled it would be really yeah I think are really helpful. Um, I want to go back to the to the concept of role models and how how you know how how does that help and how can that play a role and how can you raise awareness um, among early stage career researchers but maybe also later stage uh, researchers who um, maybe have you know for the last twenty years been operating in this very traditional uh, academic pathway but now maybe are interested or are exposed or you know how can you uh, maybe instill that interest or uh, you know uh, raise awareness about it and I think for um, maybe try to think a bit from the STEM perspective but also in terms of social science of like how can that you know how can you uh, raise that that awareness and that uh, interest. So yeah I mean actually it's a really big problem as I mentioned I guess at the start that we didn't have any role models we couldn't really say that this is a thing um, so actually the sort of the very early thing I did was basically find equivalent examples where it's like this is close enough that I can point to this and say this as an example and that's partly because that's my area of interest anyway but I'll give you two examples of ones where I borrowed so has anyone heard of super forecasting it's um okay so super forecasting is it's very popular now but it basically grew out the political science work of Philip Tetlock he basically worked out that all these pundits were sort of making these predictions about who was going to win election you know, who would win sports events, all kinds of things. And they were total rubbish, a lot of them, but not all of them were rubbish. Some of them were quite good. So he spent the whole of his career basically working out who was good and why. And some of that developed into a methodology. Over time, he realized that basically you were creating something equivalent to a prediction market. You could get people that were significantly better than the average at predicting events. He started doing cooperation with the CIA and US intelligence services. They created it. And now it's an entire field that's been used in the pandemic to predict things like the caseload, mortality rates, and they frequently beat even the expert epidemiologists through the pandemic. This all started from social science and it had a material impact on basically how governments took in information to make forecasting on how their policies should work. You know, when should we do a lockdown? What impact do we think it will have? Actually, super forecasting was one of the sort of intelligence inputs. So for me, this was like, a lot of the social scientists had heard of that. And I was like, look, that is social science that has translated and has had a very material impact on basically the experience that we're all going through right now. The second one, which um, was something I've sort of been involved in, uh, there's another community called Effective Altruism, which some of you may have heard of. Um, it's partly based on the book by William McCaskill. He was a philosopher at Oxford. So, you know, not usually associated with kind of commercialization. And he basically wrote a book about how some interventions into international development were way more effective than others. You think, fine, his book has made some good points with some evidence, because what actually started was a whole movement based on that. A community with events, with publications, everything around that. And that's, that's a commercial entity. And now 50 billion in assets come under the effective altruism movement where the people behind those assets are basically saying, we commit to these assets being deployed only in policies supported by effective altruism approved interventions. That's an enormous shift. And that's me also going back to the university and saying, look, social science humanities is not just this like diddly, nice to have, we should support all our divisions equally kind of stuff. 
It's moved 50 billion in assets globally. Now, okay, sure, there's trillions in assets. That's non-trivial. I'm not sure all the scientists could say that. So I think having those two examples was critical at the early stages before I had other Oxford people to do it. And it was also thought provoking because I was challenging the business model idea that you had to come with. Because they think, oh, you know, entrepreneurship at Oxford, startups from Oxford, that's like Oxford Nanopore for DNA sequencing. There's big labs, you know, big venture capital going in. I'm saying, no, a think tank would count. Or actually this kind of tool that you created online, that could be something as well. And I think those are, the, so it's not just the role models in people, it's the role models in the kind of venture that they could have. And that was really important. Yeah, I think I'd like to add to that. So um, the TTO that I was in was in one of the biggest medical centers in the Netherlands. Um, but actually there was not that much entrepreneurship going on. Also the entrepreneurial mindset was not really there. And um, you saw a lot of the things, eh? you see the hurdles, like people think, ah, my, my solution is not, not that technical. So why would I go into, um, uh, into an entrepreneurial route? Why, why would I not just develop it in science? And, and that's it. So what we used to do is see if we could get invited in the monthly department meetings or some other regular meeting they were already having to just go there for maybe half an hour, explain them in about 10 minutes what we could do from TTO office for them and then see what, what kind of uh, hurdles do they see? Yeah? Why would they normally not go to us when they have an idea? And let's see if we could sort of step by step break down a little bit the image that was there for the type of solutions you would have to have to actually be interesting for a TTO. And that actually really helped. And of course, hey, you go there, there are 50 people there. And I think maybe two or three of them actually at some point uh, come back to you with an idea, but it's still two or three people that otherwise you wouldn't have uh, have seen. And uh, I, I love things like hackathons, and but these kind of activities, they attract the people that already have a bit of a feel for the entrepreneurial side and, and might have a bit of interest there. Uh, and this was for us a way to also reach out to uh, to the rest of the house. Fantastic. I, I'm going to jump in and say that part of it, it's in Australia, we have role models. We have lots of startups and SMEs because that's the bulk of our sector. Um, we, we don't have a lot of very, very large corporates. So I don't feel like the role models are the issue, particularly in STEM. Right. I, I think I think what you talked about, Chris, kind of almost brings in STEM because of, you know, there's a capability now to use behavior to predict using machine learning. So, you know, that kind of goes into the steam element, I think, or something like this, right? But to me, that's 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 not the hard part. To me, it's the funding models that we have because a lot of our um, research is investigator-driven and discovery-based research. And that's absolutely critical. We need that. Particularly, I wish we had more blue sky research because that, that high risk research where it might work, it might not. We don't fund those kinds of opportunities. Australian research is smaller. It's more conservative. It, it tends to... Um, it tends to want to see that you've got results before you get the money. And so I think that whole funding structure doesn't foster entrepreneurship. 
and it doesn't foster innovation. And we don't have a diverse funding portfolio, you know, available to researchers. We don't have a huge philanthropic sector. We do have philanthropists who are generous, but it's not massive like the US. You know, there's, there's it, the, to me, the diversity of opportunities to fund in the US, to engage with industry in the US, very, very different to here. Um, and so it's part of that cultural aspect too. So I, I think it's, it's, it's role models are okay here. I think we see people doing it all the time, but they can't scale. And, and so, you know, they disappear after a while but the funding models are just, just not quite supporting it. And I'm really pleased to see that it's starting to shift right now to, to try and build a, 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 an academic sector that has a strong industry sector next to it, because at the end of the day, it's gonna benefit both. Um, it's not an either or, this is a win-win situation, even though it can't quite be seen right now and it's hard times, particularly coming out of a pandemic. But I think, you know, there's, there's real opportunities from all of this that are just waiting to happen. Um, so I have, I have a lot of hope for the future. Thank you for listening to today's discussion. Stay tuned for the next episode on the Research Valorization podcast series. Follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, and don't forget to sign up for our podcast newsletter at uin.org.